0: Five scores! Rick Pod. We decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Budd and Jerry
1: Jenner. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to
0: be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the
2: Ultimate Leafs Fan. Hello
0: Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland.
1: And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas.
0: Welcome everyone to episode 62 of the Squid and Ultimate Leap Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leaf fan. Joining me as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how are we keeping?
1: Pretty good today, Mike. The weather has cooled down a little bit. <laughs> we don't have yeah. quite the heat we've had for the past week or so. So mm-hmm. it was a little bit easier going out and playing golf this morning. So uh, uh yeah, much better. Much better.
0: Well, that's nice to hear, but you know, our, our guest today. Uh, you'll be happy to know was selected by the Montreal Canadiens in 1978 amateur draft after four years at RPI, would enjoy a five-year pro career. Currently, he's executive director of one of the oldest professional uh, players unions in, in professional sports, the Professional Hockey Players Association. Please welcome to the Screen Ultimate Fan Show, Larry Landon. Larry, first off, thanks for joining us and how we keeping?
2: Very, very good and great to be with you guys. Appreciate the opportunity.
0: So, Larry, how are you spending your time these days? Working. <laughs> yes, my <I> thoughts, so. though. <laughs> you know what?
2: Yeah, people believe that the off-season is uh, easy. Last season's off-season was just deadly uh, with delays, protocols being revised and changed along the way. Uh, this summer's been no easier. Uh, we're still crossing our fingers that we don't have teams uh, voluntarily uh, suspend for the year because of COVID and the Delta. But uh, thus far, everything looks good. Everything looks like we're going to get back to normal. It'll be tough for us because we lost four staff during the pandemic. And uh, we let staff work from home. There was always two of us in the office. I just uh, was here. I didn't man the phones. I was just busy working with the lawyers and the leagues, the NHL and the NHLPA. So uh, we're waiting for the NHLPA and the NHL's protocol to come down any day now, which will trigger us to get our return to play committees together in the American Hockey League and in the ECHL.
0: Well, before we go any further, for the listeners, could you explain to us what the Professional Hockey Players Association is and your exact role?
2: Sure. The PHP, as we call it, is, uh, maintains its own autonomy. We're not associated with the NHLP, although we work with them. We work all the unions, NFLP, NBAP, et cetera. But we represent minor league hockey players uh, that play in the AHL and the ECHL, signed to either NHL, AHL, or ECHL contracts. So uh, we are the only minor professional sports union in the world. I think we're f- probably second largest now with 58 teams and probably 1600 members, but it's our job really to negotiate the benefits, terms and condition of employment. Uh, my job is to oversee that on a daily basis with the executive committee and the staff we have here at the PHBA, as well as the advisors.
1: No, I think that's pretty cool. And I, I, I think the fact that you guys look after the guys in the minors, the ECHL, the American League, I, I think it's so important. Um, you know, what are the one of the things that you're, you know, you try to get for these guys that that that's so important uh, on a regular basis in, in, you know, especially the guys in the ECHL, there's got to be some things that are so important to them. And you're out there battling trying to get those things for them. What, what exactly would be some of the key things that you would be trying to get for those players?
2: Well, the guys in the ECHL, obviously, what's most important is to get their salaries up to the cap, the salary cap. So we've been able to move that up slowly over the years, but most importantly is their health insurance. Uh, even last year with uh, 13 teams uh, suspending, we negotiated provision with the ECHL that they can maintain the players rights. So those teams that uh, suspended maintain the rights, but in order to do that, all teams had to pay insurance for all players through June 30th. So that was important. We didn't wanna have players and families fall through the gaps. So the insurance is a huge aspect of their employment. Uh, obviously, you look at the playoff pool. You look at the per diem. You look at the travel, uh, the equipment issues. The ECHL, uh, we probably spend 90% of our time on 10% of the teams. Most teams have bought in. Mm-hmm. Other teams will go against the grain. But that's our job here is to stick up for the players and uh, try and modify their behavior.
0: Now, I just want to go back a little bit further also, Larry. The Associates have been around since since 1967. You've been involved in some form since the 70s as a player a player rep. What changes have you seen over your lifetime that put either a smile on your face or even amaze how far the organization has actually come? Well, I've been
2: involved uh, as a player rep, member of the executive committee since my rookie year in 81 with Halifax, Nova Scotia. Yeah. And uh, I can tell you that when Kurt Leichner and Arlo Goodwin, the insurance agent at the time, would come in and speak to us, we had no idea we had a union, to be honest. And it was my coach, John Brophy, that came in and addressed me and, and challenged me to be the player rep. Uh, only because I challenged him one morning without any other players around saying, listen, bro, you're too pessimistic with us. You don't give us any positive reinforcements. You know what? I, I told my wife, don't unpack my uh, clothing and stuff because you may you may send me home after this conversation. But you got to change, bro. He turned red as I would know with his white hair, stomped out of the room. And <laughs> after the practice that day, he walked in. He said, guys, you have no idea that what you have. You have a union, but you don't know it. You're going to have a gentleman come in tomorrow and talk about the union. You'll have somebody talk about insurance, but you need to get a player rep that's going to stick up for you guys. And you know what? I had a rookie come into my room this morning, none of you was around, and he didn't stick up for himself. He stood up for you guys. And Larry Landon should be your player rep. So right away, Carbano voted yes. Deauu voted yes. I think uh, Jeff Rubaker tied me down. They shaved my head my eyebrows. That was my rookie initiation. <laughs> he named the player reps. It was a thank you. But uh, over the years, it just, it's been fun to be part uh, especially on the executive committee negotiating with uh, Lou Nanny and Bill Torrey, uh, Gil Stein back then. Um, there was a time we called the defining woman in the PHPA, and uh, he admits it to this day, he did not do it, but Lou Nanny did do it. We were in uh, negotiations with the American hockey league and Lou got in a, a pretty vocal fight with our attorney, Kurt Leichner, and looked at Kurt and said, Kurt, you mentioned we have a war room down the hall. I think it's time for us to step out and get to that war room and have a discussion. So to try and calm things down, we all leave the room. Uh, we sit down. I think Teddy Nolan was with me at the time, a guy named Ted Hughesing. And what happened was I took my sports jacket off. I took my tie off. I took my shirt off, put my tie back on, put my sports jacket on. Kurt looks at me and says, what the hell are you going to do? I'll show you. Just wait. Let's go back in the room. So we went back in the room. I walked over to Lou Nanny, dropped my shirt in front of him, and said, that's the last shirt you'll ever get off a minor league hockey player's back. And that sort of changed the dynamics <laughs> of the negotiations. But it's been a fun ride. Um, it's been a lot of building relationships and building trust. Um, I want the commissioner or the president of the president's league I'm you new know, to trust me as much as I trust them, so don't lie to me, don't bullshit me, um, don't tell me you can't do it. I know you can. Uh, it's been like that uh, since '93.
1: How, uh, yeah, Larry, how, what, what's it like dealing with the owners and, and the general managers and so on in the ECHL? I mean, I know. It, at times it can be a little bit difficult. I know, you know, I while well, I coached there back in the 90s and it was pretty much cut and dry, this is what we're doing, whether you like it or not, but you know, what's it like dealing with the owners in the ECHL? Because I, I know from talking to my son who's a player rep uh, for Cincinnati, and I know it's not very easy dealing with those owners in that league.
2: Yeah, well you know what, uh, your son's in a Good spot with Ray Harris, the owner there. He is a, a true gentleman. Um, he's one of the guys yeah, yeah. We, can, we can explain what has to be done. He gets it done. I know Justin played with Fort Wayne this year, the Franquies. Uh They've become a little bit more amicable all over the years, but – The respect we've gained is there. Most clubs respect the fact that we're picking up the phone and calling them. We're not putting the player in harm's way. Uh, If we get together as a group, we're still the skunks at the garden party. You can see them in the corner whispering about, oh, there's a PHP over there. (laughs) So we're the skunk at the garden party. But I don't mind that. Uh, There was a time when I went in the IHL and I went in to speak to the owners, and they put me right in the middle of a big ballroom with a big chandelier atop me. All the owners were around me. And – I had to be pretty aggressive because there's one over there that uh, would just lie through his teeth. And he said something, I said, you know what the problem is with you? When your lips are moving, you're lying. And he walked out and came back in the board of governor's room. So um, I guess I learned that because my dad was a president of a local union here, the Brewers Union for 17 years.
0: Okay. And
2: When I went to college, I really want to find out what made made my dad tick. And I took labor management, personnel relations and things like that. So I got to know you get a hell of a lot more with one voice than a whole bunch of little voices trying to get what they want.
0: Now, what was your biggest adjustment moving from a player-player rep to a much larger management focus? And I guess I'll add it with the second question. Uh, During your indoctrination period, were the players trusting of you? Did you really have to earn their respect?
2: Well, I think when Kurt was deciding to leave the PHPA, um, he had – they came to me and asked me if I'd consider being his deputy executive director. And I said, sure, I'll, for a couple of years, I'll do that. I was working at RBC Dominion Securities as a broker. And I, I turned down coaching jobs because I knew I'd be a prick. Uh, I worked my ass off. I didn't have a skill set like Squid there. So um, I, I turned down coaching jobs, uh, Sherbrooke and with Montreal's organization, others, and um, basically just looked at it and said it, It's an adjustment I have to make. Um, I asked the players when they asked me to be executive director that let's do an audit. I want to make sure exactly where we stand. We see the books as executive. I want to know exactly where we stand on June 1, 1993, when I expect to take over. And as we found out, we were minus $75,000 in the bank. So we had nothing. We didn't have, I went to Portland to pack everything up to bring it to Ontario. And I came back with two bankers boxes. So that's from 1967 to 1993, two bankers boxes. That was it. (laughs) Uh, We didn't have printed CBAs Uh, immediately. I got all copies of CBAs at times. We got them done in French for the players. We got two 800 numbers right away. Back then players didn't have cell phones and we didn't have an office. Um, I went in the base of my house. I didn't have employees. And I tell the story and I told it to Clint Malarchuk on his podcast a couple of weeks ago, I said, it was ridiculous. The first, I would say three months I was meeting the players in Newmarket or going to Rochester getting some times down into the the E area, but uh, trying to meet as many players as I could teams coming in, talking to them. But I was in the base of my house as a single employee and the team would call and say, can I have accounting, please? I'd say, yeah, one second, please. Accounting. Can I help you? (laughs) Can I have hockey ops, please? I said, yes. One second. Hockey ops going to help you. Do you have a workers comp department? Yes, we do. One second. Workers comp going to help you. It was like out of this world for probably three or four months. Then I hired an office manager, that uh, was very, very trusted, stayed with us for probably, I want to say, 20 years. Um, helped us guide the way. Then I had to put together a team of accountants and lawyers and uh, get the faith. The executive had faith in me. I mean, Archie Henderson, Peter Denine, Donnie Knockbar were the guys that said, Larry, we want you to take this over. So with their blessing, I took over. So I knew I had the executive's blessing. I knew the executive were amongst the players talking about, hey, this is a guy we want to change this. And uh, we've taken a long way. We own our own building now. We, uh, we had 13 staff before the pandemic hit. My longtime assistant, Barbara, 23 years, said she doesn't want to come back into hockey, so we severed her off. Our uh, receptionist was ready to retire, um, so we severed her off. And then two other staff members we severed off. But we're going to have to rebuild. If it's back to normal, we need the staff here because the NHLPA has got, what, 31 teams or 32 teams this year. And they've got fifty-seven staff, and we got fifty-eight. and We're down to eight or nine staff. So I got to retread and get the more people in the office here.
1: There you go, Squid. Put your application Larry, in, Larry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I, I. don't know if I'd be much help, but you can uh, be the golf instructor. Larry, were, uh, yeah, golf instructor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the. Um, I mean, doing this for as long as you have. Have you ever considered? you know, jump or getting the opportunity perhaps and, and looking into jumping up to the NHLPA and and maybe being part of that at some point? Or is this some, something that you said, no, you know what? I'm going to stay here. It's a good job. I like what I'm doing. I'm helping the, the guys in the minors. And I have no uh, visions of moving up.
2: Well, uh, when Paul Kelly was hired, I was called by the headhunters. At that time, Dave Poulin. Uh, was working for Riley and & Associates and asked me if I'd come for an interview. First, he wanted to see my job description. So I sent my job description, uh, put together a, a bunch of highs and lows of things we've done as a union, and he says, no, you, we're interviewing lawyers right now. we want to talk to you as a, uh, as a hockey player. And they brought me up to, I think it was Yorkville, Ontario, and I had to go up the fire escape because they didn't want the reporters to see the minor league union leader there. And I got interviewed by them, and I did say at that time, Rick, to what you're mentioning, I said, I'll only come for one reason. And that is if I could bring the PhD with me, because I'm not letting those guys down. I don't want them to get destroyed down there. So uh, as it turns out, Paul Kelly got the job. I didn't. Paul interviewed me for eight hours after he got the job just to find out the things he should be looking at. And I said, never forget the wives. Like here at our office, and our database, you're gonna call a player's house. If the wife answers, talk to her by her first name. And she's gonna be surprised that we're that close to the family. So um, I had the chance, Rick. And now I wouldn't do it. I um, I was supposed to retire July 1 and the players forced me to take a five-year contract uh, and I only took it with the condition that, listen, I need it out. I'll give you six months notice during that five years that I want out Then I want to get out. Uh, my wife retired from her job in Toronto in 2018 with aspirations of traveling and when the pandemic, I said, huh, we we're not traveling so I'll just, I'll keep working. <laughs> but I love what I do.
0: Well, it sure sounds like, I mean, it sounds like you've done a phenomenal job. So, I mean, this, question might almost be redundant but i was going to ask you through all of your treasures to get where it was today larry was there a defining moment when you finally felt comfortable that you could do the job and the players were definitely on your side because after all it's one thing to go from player rep representing 17 voices to 14 to 1500 voices things can go sideways in a real hurry
2: well i I think in in the IHL, we had a large arbitration over the playoff shares of the Detroit Vipers at the time that we were very successful securing a lot of money for the players. We had in the ECHL, when we first got in there, we had 84 grievances, and we were 83-1. and So the players in the E gained confidence in us. And then in the AHL, years ago, the NHL and NHLPA agreed in their CBA to what was called a re entries draft, where you could make no more than $75,000 in the American Hockey League um, so we had to challenge that. We uh, hired Jeff Kessler, an antitrust lawyer in New York, uh, at $2,000 an hour. I said, Jeff, we can't afford that. I'll tell you what, I'll give you my salary for the year. You just got to win this for the players. And, uh, we fought it out with the NHL. Ted Saskin was running the NHL PA. Uh, we went to New York. I had, um, the lawyers with me, they had about 12 lawyers on their side. And in the end, we won. We won the case. We could have triple damages, but we got got everything revised and changed. And players received a lot of money. And to the point, we think if we looked, once we removed that for the period of time, it would have been a place. There's probably $54 million that flowed to the players that otherwise wouldn't have.
0: I was going to ask you, so what kind of issues and grievance? you just mentioned grievances, what kind of issues or grievances would you be dealing with on a daily basis or you know, along the lines of that?
2: Well, suspension right now. There's performance-enhancing substance program issues we deal with. Uh, thank God we haven't had a lot of them. Um, it's not fun when a player is tested positive. We had one uh, last March um, when hockey shut down. Unfortunately, the lab shut down, and the test wasn't taken until or tested until the middle of June. And here we are getting ready for the following season, and we got a kid that's positive. So I personally went because I knew his father. I knew his gym very well. I personally went to the lab in Montreal just to watch the second test to make sure everything is fine. But as it turns out, that was positive, too. So those are the kinds of things that you're battling for the players. Equipment issues like skates. Uh, Rick mentioned the ECHL. Some ECHL teams are just brutal at getting guys new skates. It's a cost. They don't want to pay. Uh, Sticks, another thing. But a lot of it's whether it be health, uh, injuries, workers' comp is massive now. Uh, we have attorneys in every single city and we team up with the NHLPA and the NFLPA and we host uh, annual, we host one in the NA, uh, NFL host one a panel meeting of attorneys throughout the United States. And now the CFL in Canada is getting a movement afoot that pro athletes in Canada are going to get protected for uh, workers comp. So that's the biggest area is the injuries.
1: Yeah, no, I know that, uh, you know, especially in the American League, uh, there are some states that are different than others. Mm-hmm. Um, that if, if a player incurs an injury of some sort, uh, I mean, it, I know guys are putting in for workers' comp when they get a cut, you know, and that sort of thing. And that's worth X amount of dollars and, and that sort of thing. But I, I think I'm thinking about the more serious uh, injuries where guys miss half a year or miss maybe their careers end because of the injury. I know, I know my son had a couple of serious injuries in the American League and you know, he, he made up pretty good with uh, workers' comp, so uh, good for you guys to put that all together and, and have the people in the different states that can represent the players and uh, get that done.
2: Well, there's some big ones. I mean, the states are constantly fighting the changes, and the unions, including the PHB and the major unions, we have lobbyists fighting on yeah. their behalf. So, I mean, I've been to the legislation in Michigan with Richard Berthelsen. Um, I've been to, I think it's New Orleans one time with the uh, – uh, Gene Upshaw that ran the NFLP at the time, just to try and we had teams and we had, we had the New Orleans um, brass. We had to stick up for our players. And that was a great one because Drew Brees uh, came walking right in with this whole team. And they had the music was playing, when the Saints or oh, when the Saints or oh, when the Saints come marching in. And, and the, the, the politicians that were going for the change and restriction workers come they folded right away. So it was. It's fun. There's some good times to see too, but it's a battle along the way.
0: I was going to ask you. You've touched on it already. The relationship with the NHL. I mean, it sounds like it's a good one today, but it probably wasn't always as such. So you've really had to do some building there and sort of fence building along with the NHL. And where is it today?
2: Well, the NHL. Um, Bill Daly and I are pretty good friends. I mean, at a distance, professional friends, I guess. I deal with him more uh, than I would with Gary Bettman. Uh, Don Fear has changed the way the PHBA's um, identified and dealt with by the NHLPA. There's a lot more, uh, maybe two, three times a day you're talking to them. Uh, they, they verbally read me their protocol, which is not in the players' hands yet, so I could update our executive yesterday as to what to expect. So there's some things that are going to make it very difficult for an unvaccinated that unvaccinated player this year in hockey. And we're hearing it every day. We got the anti-vaxxers that are all over me. They want me to resign. But – I would say 96% of the players are vaccinated, but we need the NHL and the NHLPA assisting us in understanding, okay, how is an American hockey League player that's unvaccinated recalled the National Hockey League? And that's gonna be tough because now you have, I think San Jose just announced, I think Buffalo just announced, and I think Madison Square Garden has announced, even the athletes entering the building have to be fully vaccinated. So if you're not vaccinated, you're not getting to play the game. And there'll be a phrase heard lots this year, no play, no pay. Um, and that sucks. And sometimes you're, you're in a position you got to tell the players what they want to hear, not what they, uh, what they have to, you have to tell them what they have to hear, not what they want to hear. And that makes it difficult. And that leads to a lot of negative connotation between the players and us at times, but it's a minimal, that's the 5% or the 3%. Uh,
1: great, Larry, uh, you know, I, I've, I've talked a lot uh, with people and, And, you know, now I see the ECHL far from when I coached in the 90s. The NHL are kind of using that as a three-tier system now. Pretty much every team has an affiliate in in the East Coast League. They're sending guys down, young guys that, that aren't ready for the American League and that sort of thing. Is there a day in the future perhaps where you see the PHPA, the NHLPA as one? like perhaps for all the leagues and, and the NHL using the the ECHL a lot more?
2: I know that's been discussed, Rick, not on a formal basis, but there has been discussion. In fact, with the executive board yesterday indicated to them that the ECHL this year is adding Coralville, Iowa, to be Iowa, Minnesota mm-hmm. Wilds, number three team. And the Montreal Canadiens uh, and Laval now have three rivers as their ECHL team. Uh, we're anticipating Savannah, Georgia. I think they may have been in the league, Rick, when you coached. Savannah's coming back in the following season, mm-hmm. and uh, Binghamton year, yeah. lost their American League team. So Binghamton and New um, Manchester, New Hampshire, New Hampshire. There's some talk there. So I told the guys yesterday, I don't think we're that far away from having 32 NHL, 32 AHL, and 32 ECHL, and that's the time where, like you say, the NHL is using that league now as getting their younger players down there. Uh, we expanded the rosters this past year with COVID. We had 13 teams in the East suspend operations. We had three in the A. We worked with the NHL and the American League and the ECHL to add three or four roster slots to every ECHL team just to get more players playing.
0: That, that's great. I mean, we have, Squid and I talk about that a lot, about the importance of the ECHL being a feeder league for the National Hockey League along with the American Hockey League. So we think it is very critical. So obviously you guys are pounding the drums on that already. But – one of the other things I like to discuss with you, I mean without naming names, Larry, unless you want to, of course. What are some of the bizarre or serious or maybe off the cup issue you've had to deal with over the years that you kind of look back on and you can either chuckle at or just smile?
2: Uh, I'm not gonna say the name because
0: No, no you don't have to. <laughs>
2: but I was involved in an NHLP arbitration where I was called in as the minor league witness and um, it was in New York. And I'll never forget, um, so we're in the back room with the NHLP attorneys and the player's agent, and they're asking me, what about this and what about that? I said, well, listen, this isn't the NHL. This kid's being suspended and reprimanded in the minors where the fans have full access to the players. There's no protection. And when a player starts getting called racial slurs and names, he's got to be protected, and he has a right to defend himself and remove himself from that situation. But that arbitration went on, and I – Got to write down the questions asked by the NHLPA lawyers. And uh, the next day, the player came dressed in the exact same clothes as the day before. And I said, oh, my God, (laughs) we're here to defend this player (laughs) in New York, the exact same clothes on as the day before. And that's something I'll never forget. Then (laughs) there was a blizzard. And I said, listen, I got to get home. We're not the NHLPA. I can't afford a $1,000 room night. And I'm not going to go to Super 8 down the street. I got to get home. And so the GM of the team says, well, you know what, if you can get down to Madison Square Gardens to Union Station, there's a uh, train that will leave. Unless there's 10 inches of snow on the tracks, it'll stop. <laughs> this is great. I got to get back to Buffalo to a train station, get a cab over to the airport to get my car. But it all worked out. But that, that was a weird one. We've, uh, we've been in some uh, situations uh, where when um, visors became mandatory, that was a tough one. It's good. You'll remember debate about this with everybody but at our level we had seven or eight lost eyes so we had doctors we had the evidence to suggest you know what even the, the workers comp injury around the facial area um when visor became mandatory we had a pushback and players started wearing them wives would call us say listen you got to convince my husband well that's not my job there's a very mandatory rule but we had one player in particular in a dressing room challenge me and saying listen landon this is effing bullshit." You know, we don't have to wear visors. It's it's ridiculous. I fight; my knuckles are going to chewed up. I said, "Listen, it's mandatory." He says, "I don't want to wear a visor." I said, "Let me ask you something. Why do you wear a jock? What's more important, losing an eye or a nut?" He's like, okay, "You got me." <laughs> so you put the mask on.
0: <laughs> um, I was uh, here's another double question for you, Larry. Um. Post-career, are players still eligible to PHP benefits, and if so, for how long? And secondly, any ex-players out there that may not be aware that he's entitled to some help, is there somebody he can contact to find out if he can?
2: What we do for the ex-players is we have a career enhancement program that's huge. Probably, I'm going to say the largest in sport. We just put 23 guys through as firefighters. Uh, we have, I think, 32 players at University of Buffalo taking analytics and sports and law. Um, we have a new police services coming in with the OPP here in Ontario, but uh, the health insurance eligibility is extended to all players that are members and their wives. The ECHL goes through June 30th. The American League goes year round. Uh, it has disability insurance. It has vision, it has dental. The E we recently got dental in, but for ex-players, the only thing they have is a right to get COBRA. Now Cobra's a uh, insurance premium, but you pay for yourself for 18 months and that's when it ends. So we're hoping the players transition and end up in jobs with benefits within that 18-month period. And it's not really that expensive for the ECHL player, a single player. I think it's $240 a month. A married player is probably $400 a month, as opposed to the NHL squad. It's something like $20,000 a year in the U.S. for insurance. So it's it's something that we're very respectful of. We'd love to get the guys better insurance. But again, uh, we're dealing with, in this case with, especially with minor league owners that don't have the huge pocket, pocketbooks like the National Hockey League.
1: It's great. Again, that, well, okay, that brings me back again to the question I asked earlier about the the NHLPA and and so on. Again, is there any hope in the future that perhaps these players can be taken care of a little bit better uh, with the, the insurance and that sort of thing? by joining with the NHLP. I mean, I know, like in my situation, I'm not eligible to get on the NHL NHLPA uh, uh, insurance. You know, I know, I think it came in, I'm not even sure what year it started where players after they finished playing could stay on for a number of years. And I think now they can stay on for as long as they want. Yeah, And, you know, that would be something that, I think would be great for the players if it's something that could be ironed out in the future.
2: Yeah, the thing is that it's at our level, Rick, it may be cost prohibitive for the player. The NHL plan for the player that can have it forever is well over $20,000 U.S. a year. So a, a guy at our level may not be able to afford that. I mean, we try and get them um, effective. Uh, if a guy calls with a need, we're going to effective treatment. If a guy calls with a drug or alcohol issue, a, a retired player, we're getting him help right away. Um, and we're paying for it. Um, but we're not going to let players get kicked to the curb and not care about them. But the, the thing is, I should say this with the NHLPA, um, a few years ago, Don fear, uh, came on board. We started to put stuff, um, uh, much the same on our computer database players, only site that mirrored the NHLPAs. And since then they started to give us a development fee, uh, X number of dollars in it's six digits a year for us to work towards bettering the players understanding of the NHLPA when they get there. So that Rick ties into what you're asking the relationship is getting tighter and tighter uh each year and that's a good thing that's probably good before i retire if we can get something going that they uh look at us as a secondary or affiliated union
0: well i mean it's i mean it sounds like you guys are making some great strides larry and it's uh you know it's a continuous uh obviously job in motion and it never stops and you're always going to try and improve and i think squid you've got you're on the right track i think one day we do see this all as one for all players and Anyway, what we'd like to do at this point in time is we will continue to talk about the subject moving forward. But Larry, let's go back to the early years years in your career. Talk about how you started in hockey leading up to lighting up with those big numbers with the hometown Niagara Falls Flyers Junior B team, then on to St. Catharines, then off to embarking on a very successful college career at RPI.
2: Well, I don't think I was destined to play hockey at a young age. Um, I I told... (laughs) A number of people have asked, but when I was a kid, they thought I had a hole in my heart and my mom was just fearful of me playing hockey. And I was skating with kids at school and the, uh, one of the teachers says, you should come and play hockey with the kids. We have a, a hockey session. It'd be great for you. I went home and told my mom and dad, my mom says, you're absolutely you're not playing. And so slowly my dad bought me equipment and hid it and uh, got me a stick and hid that got me a bag and hit that. And then one day when I knew this school was playing, I went to play hockey with the kids. And my mom got home and she said, where's Larry? My dad said, he went to play hockey. Well, I didn't take the wrath of it. He did, but I got grounded for a week. But as <laughs> it comes to be, the more tests they did, it was a minor heart murmur that I grew out of, but my mom was fearful that that would destroy me. So um, I started playing hockey and I didn't make all-star until probably, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old. Um, But I tell the story, and it's neat that people hear that if it wasn't for people around you, you'd never get to where you're going. And I was a hockey player playing, and I came off the ice one day, minor hockey, mom and dad were at the rink, and there was this old guy who's full of cow shit and old boots and a hat and big, dirty fingernails. Um, And he said, son, can I see your right skate? I said, my right skate for what? He said, please, let me look at your right skate. So he takes a look at it. He says, what the hell is this? I said, my dad welded my skate, the blade broke, my dad welded it. So you can all well imagine the beads right in the middle. And every time they sharpened it, that would get bigger and bigger. And if I hit that on the ice, I'd go flying. So I went to the skate without hitting it. And he says, are you my dad here? I said, yeah, they are. So they come down. I'm thinking, who the hell's this guy? Um, they come down and uh, they go, Mr. And Mr. Lana, listen, I don't expect any of this. Your kid can probably skate a lot better than what you're seeing, but not on a pair of skates like this. So I'd like to take him to, I think it was Markham, Ontario. I'm going to take him to the CCM factory and get him kangaroo leather skates, custom made for him. And you're going to see a difference in his skating. So this gentleman, Russ Masterson, who ended up going, coming on to own all the junior B teams, the tier two flyers that were in the city. um, And he lost a lot of money on those ventures, but he was a guy that really, really wanted to help the hockey players in Niagara Falls to the point right now with hockey Canada, uh, their gala, if we do get it next year, we're looking to change the name of one of the arenas around here to Russ Masterson Arena. Um, but he helped me get a start in hockey just with that. And then as as it went on, like I got to high school playing hockey, playing junior B. And all of a sudden, uh, the teacher comes up to me, a guy named Phil Mazone, um, who really is like a second father. And he said, Larry, you got to get your grades up. You got 72 colleges and universities are inquiring about you. You got to get your grades up. And I said, "What's what's spoke well, college? Like none of my family in our family tree we ever went to university or college." He said, "It's a scholarship; they'll pay for your education." I don't want education; I want to play hockey. Yeah, you go play hockey, <laughs> and they're going to take care of you in case you get hurt. You have an education, and he says, "Well, yeah, your marks up." And it, at that time, I think all my ca- classes combined in grade ten were probably a forty-eight average, and that's all of them combined. <laughs> I'd fall asleep in class, like, and then P- he wondered, well, what, what the hell is going on?" I said, "Well, listen." Um, god bless my mom and dad they treated us well they did whatever they could to provide for us but at that time we had to put food on the table so as, a, as soon as i got my license at 16 i was asked to get up at one o'clock in the morning go to the saint Catharines train station pick up the telegram and global mail papers and distribute them all through uh Welland, fort erie dunville and go over to peace bridge in buffalo to get the racing plate for the racetrack in in um Fort Erie and then get home at six thirty or 7 in the morning. It was snowing maybe 8 o'clock, eat breakfast fast, and go to school. That was five days a week. That mm. was killing me. So this Mr. Mazzone says, can I talk to your parents? I said, you better not. I better talk to them first. And so I went and talked to mom and dad and they cried. And they, <laughs> we'll find a way to make this work, Larry. But next thing you know, it's my oldest sister that's doing it with my younger brother just so she has a man in the car. But uh, I had to give that up and Phil Mazzone said, I'll work with you now. And he got me tutors and by the time I got to grade 12, my average was 88. So that's when I went on to RPI. But I was re- really lucky to have him come along and grab me by the arm and say, hey, let's do this.
0: But didn't you have a shot to play in the OHL with St. Catharines? And you, you chose – why did you choose college over the O?
2: Uh, we had some battles with the Ems family. And I wasn't that good of a player, but I was a second-round pick. And we just had some battles with them. And then when I saw the chance coming, I went to play for Niagara Falls Tier 2 Flyers. Russ ran. And then uh, that's when I looked at university after that and chose RPI because the coach at the time there was Jim Solfei. He was from Niagara Falls, Ontario, where I'm from. Uh, Had a lot of faith in me. I knew I'd get right away get in a position where I'd be fairly well taken care of and able to play rather than be on junior varsity. And as it turned out, it worked out.
1: It's great. Well, I think that that was a pretty smart move, Larry. And, uh, (laughs) you know, because I can say the same thing about my son. And he got drafted by Sudbury. Mike Felina was a coach and I played with Mike. So we went up to Sudbury, we came home, and he had already made the U.S. development program team if he wanted to go there. And, you know, I said, it's up to you. I mean, it's your decision, it's not mine, Uh, you know. And so I said, what I want you to do is take two sheets of papers and put the pros and the cons of each on each sheet. And so he did. And then a couple of days later, he said, Dad, you know what? He says, I'm a good player, but I'm not a star. He says, I'm not sure as a 16-year-old that I'm going to play that much in Sudbury. I think I got a better chance of playing more of the U.S. program. Plus, I'm going to get good off-ice stuff. And I got a very good chance of getting a scholarship at at a V1 university in the U.S. And I said, OK, whatever. I said, it's your choice. So he goes there, gets a full ride to Miami, Ohio, got a good education, and he's still playing pro hockey. I, I think that's fantastic.
2: Yeah, and he's done well for us too, Rick, so should be proud of him.
1: Now I was going to ask you, uh, Larry, uh,
0: talk about life at the college level, and then the second part is I love the second part of questions of you today. Take us through a typical day playing hockey at RPI, <laughs> just like you walk through your everyday life in Niagara Falls. Take us through a day at, of hockey at RPI and talk about the college level of play.
2: Well, even though my grades was 88 to get me into RPI, they had to get me in with a lot of Vaseline and out with a boot. <laughs> uh, it was tough. Like, um, RPI is known for engineering and yeah. like statistics and analysis and stuff like that. Like I was getting lost in some of these courses to the point they had to get tutors for me at, at college too. But I remember saying, listen, I'm not going to be out there designing the bridges like the architects and engineers at RPI. I'm just sitting in an office watching you build them somehow. I don't care but I'm not early learning engineering so I took, uh, management um, and what happened was it worked out, but I ended up being the captain team there for three years. So a lot of pressure was put on me, helping the younger players, mentor them, the recruits coming in, convincing them to come, going into the living rooms of people's houses. So as a captain, you're pulled into a lot of that, but it was fun. It was fun knowing, okay, you're going to the rank. You're going to go together as a group and play with a lot of fun guys. Uh, the parties are fun. The frat parties are fun. The fr- the uh, sorority parties were a lot of fun, um, but uh, we, had a nursing, we had a nursing school down the street called Russell Sage. There was 5,000 nurses, so I could tell you where the hockey players and football players were a lot. <laughs> but yeah. it's uh, RPI. Our,
0: our so what, what time did your day start and, and finish? Let's like, walk us through a day.
2: You do your classes. You start at probably eight thirty nine o'clock, but by 3 o'clock, you're done. You're at the rink at 4, and you're at the uh, cafeteria eating by 6, so... Uh, and typically we were in the last ones in the cafeteria, the sports teams, whether it be the hockey team, the basketball team, the football team, depending on the season, but it, it was, it was fun.
1: Yeah. Well, I can tell you about the parties because I know on weekends when we used to go visit Justin at Miami, Ohio, it was pretty wild. And, uh, I, you know, I mean, they lived in a house. There was four guys, uh, Tommy Wingles, Pat Canoni and him. And, uh, can't remember the fourth guy's name but they had a big backyard and there'd be like about six sets of those beanbag throwing things and it was just incredible it was it was i you know i i said to myself i said god i wish i had gone to school (laughs) because this was fun
2: (laughs) well i can i can sum it up real quick college or university is a great place to stay warm between high school and marriage
0: That is, I think we can end the show right there. I think that's summed it up all perfectly. You said there was no filter. Oh no, that's absolutely perfect. I love that. Yeah, that. That's that. That's tough to cap that one, but here we'll try. Three of the four years at RPI, you were captain. How do you become a captain at the college level? Is there sort of format? The coaches or the players vote on it, or it's a coach of selection. It's a pretty big honor for a sophomore to be selected as captain. So, I mean, I'd like to let you put your modesty aside for a second and tell us how that all occurred.
2: No, it really came down to the coaches. Um, Jim I was leaving. I, we didn't know at the time. Uh, that was his second year, my sophomore year. And then Mike Odessa came in and um, asked me to be the captain. But I was asked to do all the on-ice training with the players, lead the stretching before any running we did. I was asked to uh, commit to that. But I, I was very committed at working out. Um, I like to. like at the time, try and keep myself in shape. Um, and I joke around, uh, Marcel Dion and uh, um, Rick Womsey and I and Don Lever used to go to the Ridley College in St. Catharines, and the conditioning there was we had five pucks each in the blue line. You had to shoot all five to you scored on Womsey. Well, him being the prick he was, if he saved it, he shot it at the other end of the ice, you have to go <laughs> get it, come back, and try and shoot again the other end of the ice. it's just It was ridiculous, but I prided myself in conditioning, and the coach knew that. So I was able to get a lot of the guys believing in, okay, here's our system. Here's what to do. And RPI wasn't really ranked that high. Uh, we did go to Wisconsin, was ranked number one, and beat them back-to-back, uh, won New Year's. And we were. I think the highest we were ranked when I was there was probably sixth in the nation. But um, as it turned out, it was a great, great opportunity to be there, to be the captain. In fact, we played the 1980 U.S. Olympic team in their last pre-Olympic game at RPI before we went to Lake Placid. And I was asked to go up and watch them play. And I accepted another player who played in the NHL, Mike McPhee, that played in the RPI. We both accepted because our coach was running the USA dressing room. And we went up there, and I'll tell you what, I'm a Canadian. I was bawling my eyes out when the U.S. won that gold medal. And that's something I'll never forget. And I would never have been in that position to see it if I didn't go to college. But that's Very history awesome. the making.
0: Now, um, yeah, your draft year, any talk that you might get taken, and how did you find out Montreal had selected him and the day actually occurred?
2: Well, the uh, RPI had a, a scout um, for Montreal Canadiens there. And I know Dave McNabb at the time was scouting for another team and said, listen, there's lots of eyes on you. So I didn't know if I'd get drafted or not. I know I had a good year. We had a good line. Uh, I think we were top. I was a penalty killing. We were top in the country for penalty killing. I had no idea. Draft day, I wasn't told anything. Nobody called me. <laughs> I was holding Pepsi at some convenience store. And I walked in. The guy knew I played hockey. And he goes, you know what? Do you know you just got drafted by Montreal Canadiens? Just announced on the radio. I said, what are you talking about? He said, they just announced on the radio you got drafted Montreal Canadiens. And then by the time I got home, I <laughs> called and give them a call back. But uh, I don't know what it was, 7-3 round pick. So you don't think you have a chance, um, but you don't give up because you'd like to get the chance. And mm. I was very fortunate. I got a chance to play. And uh, I got to play against Vive. I think uh, Vive DeLego Anderson was my third game in the NHL. Nice, nice awakening. Oh, my second game it was. My first was against Edmonton Oilers and Wayne Gretzky in the forum. And Jacques Lemaire called me in and said, uh, you got a tough job tonight, kid. You're going to be shadowing number 99, Wayne Gretzky. And I said, oh my god. So he says, but I understand you're pretty good defensively. So he gave me number 25, his number, to wear. And I'll never forget, after that practice, I went to the back of the Montreal Forum. The back wall sat as high as I could, watched Edmonton practice, shaking like a leaf, and bawling my eyes out, saying, at that time, I was afraid of failure. But Brophy said, the first shift you have in the ice, Landon, just hit somebody hard. Well, it was Randy Jackson, who's now a doctor. But I hit Randy. Next thing you know, I go over to the bench, and I try and hit Gretzky. And all of a sudden, um, what's his name? Rick is fighting.
0: Samenko. Samenko.
2: Samenko leans over the board and says, Landon, this isn't the American Hockey League. (laughs) Gretzky, on a faceoff, gets kicked out, comes over, hits me on the shins, and uh, says, first game of the show, hey kid? Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm older than him. And then uh, it was a great <laughs> experience because again, you remember the people that got you there. And back then we didn't have cell phones. So before the game, I put a, cell, a list of 10 people in their phone numbers with cellophane inside my glove and lamar told me to be on the starting lineup. So they're on the starting lineup with me. I was able to share that with the people once the game was done, but um, it's a boring story, but neat for me, we were playing at Edmonton. They're the stack team and uh it was the score was two to two face off on our end and all of a sudden lamar says i'm playing with carpino and ganey so rick I, i'm playing with two good guys and we face him my second oh, game yeah and uh i just put my head down like a rookie would nobody's putting a rookie out there face off on your own end i'm in eight seconds left Edmonton, it's, it's not going to happen also america comes out and says landon get up there with your line so i go over the boards i go to bob ganey i said bob listen oh my god if we get the puck gets out. I got to go right to the bench. He said, why? I said, look around the ice. Gretzky, Massey, Anderson, Coffee, Curry, God, they got the f- four forwards and one defenseman out there and they're all stars. And I said, if that's not enough, Bob, you know what? I think I may have just shit my pants. <laughs> <So> <laughs> we had a, we had a, what yeah. face off. It comes around to me just as they planned. I tap it out. We go up, don't we score now? It's three, two. And I, once we're done the celebration, high five and all that, I rush straight to the bench I sit in the bench. I put my head between the legs like a rookie would. And all of a sudden, <laughs> the bear hits me on the shoulder. Get out there and kill the clock. I said, oh, God, <laughs> We killed the clock we won the game. So it, it, it was fun. And you know what? Rick enjoyed a real long career in the NHL. I didn't. But I'll tell you what. My mom and dad were there. And just to play one game, it felt like a refrigerator off my shoulders working so hard to get there and finally getting there. Yeah. So it was pretty cool. And I got to play another one for uh, Montreal against Rick. Vibe Derleguen soon. that's the line we had to shadow that night. And um, then I got traded to Toronto. Uh, John Brophy told me at the end of the, the, his time with Halifax, he was leaving the organization. He says, Larry, wherever I go, I'm bringing you with me. So um, it's it's too bad things didn't work out in Toronto. I had a, a curing injury when I was with the Leafs. So um, crazy, crazy. Nice video there, guys.
0: Yeah, how about that? There you go.
2: Was that five trips coming in behind there after we scored on them?
0: Or you standing stand at center ice waiting for a pass.
2: <laughs> he could score from center ice with that slap shot. And that exactly. That had.
0: Um, I was going to ask you now, just, I mean, just talk about what were the, some of the differences playing between, from going from college to pro, some of the differences you found playing at that level?
2: Well, I, I think initially it was my feeling that the college kids were be- – well, it's Brofie though. Rick knows brof. College kids were being treated oh, a lot yeah. different by brof oh, brof yeah. than the junior kids. Uh, the tough kids were treated a lot differently by brof than the guys that just were scorers. And I was a role player, so I, w- I would hit and penalty kill and all that. So, I mean, brof, if there was a five-minute penalty, unheard of today, but he'd actually give me shit if I jumped off the ice with any time during the five minutes. Stay out there. Stay out there. Well, you're dead as a dog. But you do it. But that's not stuff like in college you're playing, I don't know, 28 games. Then you go pronos and you're playing 70, 80 games plus playoffs. Uh, you had to learn to adapt and adapt quickly and understand, take care of your body, eat well, and uh, just get the rest you need. Because you're going on a bus in the minors, you're sleeping on the floor, and get ready for the next game. So I used to it's have funny.
1: hair. It's funny. used
2: to, used to have some hair. Yeah. Look at that.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a- and it's and it's dark too. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> and, he's got I the, and
0: he's got the, like, like, the I, Bra- like the Tom Brady look.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I got I got the John Brophy look right now. <laughs> Speaking John- of Brof, uh, uh I got to play for him twice. One of the things, I mean, I, I got to tell you right now, he was a big uh, part of me becoming the player I was, in, in that. He he said to me in Birmingham, in the WHA, he said, look, we, you know, all our tough guys are gone. You know, you're going to get, you're going to have a tough time. He said, but if you don't stand up for yourself, then they're going to take advantage of you as much as they can. So if you're going to establish yourself in in the National Hockey League or this league or any other professional league, you better start standing up for yourself. So, you know, sure enough, I fought a lot, got the shit kicked out of me most of the time, but you know what? It worked. I mean, it was like, I think the guys finally just said, like, you know what, I, I don't want to hit his helmet with my hand anymore, so I'm just going to leave him alone. And then I got a little bit more room. And the other thing about growth that I found was, you know, I think a lot of guys thought that he wanted everybody to be a, a, a tough guy. And, you know, knowing growth as well as I did, I, I know that all he wanted was 100% of whatever type of game you played. But some of the guys just didn't understand that. And some of them would get upset. Russ Cordo was one of them, ended up get, being involved in one of the worst trades in, in yeah. the National Hockey League history. Uh, but that was all because he didn't understand that Broke just wanted them to give him 100% of what, the way he played. And he didn't expect them to be a fighter or anything.
2: Yeah. No, bro. was like that. If you worked hard for him, he appreciated it. And I, I was very lucky. I mean, you've heard of Bro's bag skates after the game in front of the fans and the other team. Well, I was never part of that. I was it, in the game, but Brof wouldn't have me participate. Landon, go take your equipment off. You worked far too hard tonight. The rest of the guys didn't. So he treated me so well. Um, I give him credit for getting me in the National Hockey League. Um, I had a lot of fun with him. He trusted me. Um, the story about that you hear about me driving the bus, I did it because the bus was drunk and Brof knew my family had a good times fishing bus. And I had to, do it. we were in Fredericton. The bus driver was so drunk, he yelled at Bro. says, Q tip, what are you doing? And obviously, you could smell his breath. He thought a big major storm was coming in, and it didn't. So, Bro says, Landon, get behind the steering wheel. I said, bro, if I can't drive this bus. Landon, get behind the goddamn steering wheel. I said, One sec, Bro." So, I grabbed the microphone, looked to the back, Billy Kitchen, Billy Ride, all those guys. And I grew bigger. I said, Guys, listen, the coach wants me to drive the bus. I know I can. But before I do that, I want to show of hands. You're all assuming your own liability if I'm driving this bus. Yeah, let's go for it. So I start driving the bus, heading <laughs> back towards Halifax. And Broby says, do you think I'm f'n crazy? Find a hotel, park the bus, and let's get the boys a few beers. So I parked the bus, and I had to have players help me. Evangeli, I think, and Carl will help me back the bus in. And so it's a diesel bus. So the, the bus driver is drunk as hell. He checks in the hotel. I go out in the morning to start the bus for him. He comes out, he's still drunk, but the problem is he called the police thinking somebody was stealing the bus, and all of a sudden, I get police all around with guns, and I'm a hockey player in a bus just in the diesel for them. So well, Brof comes out, gets it resolved. The poor bastard got fired, the bus driver, but uh, we got back to Halifax safely, and I was there when they, the window got punched out by Brof. I was right behind him, and he just got so mad he's hitting his head and bang, hits the bus window, and we're in Fredericton, five-and-a-half-hour drive back to Halifax in a snowstorm, and Brof was too proud. He sat in that front seat. We all congregated the back of the bus just for warmth. And the snow was coming flying at the bus, but Brof didn't care. He, and like Rick said, he demanded 100%. Oh. He, he hated losing. He hated it. Hated it. He hated yeah. if you talk to the opposition should, yeah. uh, on a draw. If you talk, you're not a line change, talk to the opposition. He'd go crazy. But he just wanted you to be competitive and do the best you could.
1: Larry, were you there when, uh, and I, I can't remember the player's name, he stopped the bus like a couple of miles or something from the rink and made him walk?
2: Yeah, I was there. After the, Dwight Schofield. Day. Dwight Schofield. I was the player oh, is, that who,
1: is that who it was? Okay.
2: I was the player rep. <laughs> you talk about having to stick up for your player. My God. So what happens is we're playing against <laughs> Hershey Bears, and uh, we go, out and Grove gets word before the game and makes the mistake of telling, uh, Dwight Schofield, he's getting recalled after the game. So Schofield, he's protecting his hands. He's not fighting. He, we're all to our own. So when the game ends, after the second period, Bro says, go take your equipment off. After the second period, he sends Schofield to take his equipment off. And we don't have any idea he's being recalled. As it turns out, he didn't get recalled. But um, <laughs> Bro, Bro, <laughs> take your equipment off. He gets goes to get on the bus. And Bro says, what are you doing on the bus? And I, I think we're going to Baltimore. Find your own goddamn way to Baltimore. Well, good luck. So I said, bro, if you can't do that, you can't do it. Yeah, I can do it. I'm the coach. I can do anything that I want to do. Bro, if you can't do that to a player, he's out here stranded. He knows nobody. So I said, bro, if you tell him to do it, I'm telling him to call a limousine and you're paying for it because we'll file agreements and we'll win it. So Scoey got us a limousine. I said, Scoey, I wish I could do something more than this and have you on the bus with your teammates, but I can't. But I want you to get a limousine, keep the receipt, and the Montreal Canadiens be paying for it. And they did. So sure. – or Dwight Schofield. <laughs> that, that was a tough one. I really, but I got so many bro stories. Oh my god!
0: Well, I was going to ask you for it. He's one of the names that comes all the time with Mike Keenan and Brof, and everybody has a story. So if you got oh. another Brof, we'd love to hear it.
2: No, I, I'd say one that's inappropriate though. That's so, okay. Rick's probably heard that one. The gash on the side of his cheek there, Rick. Did he ever tell you what happened there? Why? Oh,
1: no, he never told me.
2: Okay, so I'm, hopefully I don't I, get.
1: No,
2: I don't kicked up my job for this one. So Bro's playing for the Long Island Ducks. And John Brophy never yeah. played a single game without a five-minute major. And that means sticking guys to whatever yeah. can. So they, they just finished winning a game. And uh, he's driving away. He's had a couple of pops. The young lady's with had probably a few more pops. And she's undressed, laying on his lap in the car. I don't know what was happening, but she was undressed, laying on Bro's lap. And all of a sudden, he veers off the road and he hits a tree. The, girl, the girl's nude. Brof's got a gash from the steering wheel and the gear shift. And the deputy comes along and says, Brof, what the hell is going on? He says, what do you mean it's going on here a tree? He goes, no, what's going on? There's a girl in your car. She's knocked unconscious. You've got no clothes on. No clothes? Oh, shit, it must have been the impact of the tree. <laughs> 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 back, back then, he was so well-known that he had, the, the sheriff of where it was said, okay, we need to get you out of here and get you out of here now and get her help. And get you some hospital help. So when Brov told me that story with we a few beers in the front of the bus, I said, "Okay, now he trusts me." But uh, no, I was there when uh, they thought he was going to die. At one time, uh, his wife put me on the phone to talk to him. And he was listening, and the nurse said his eyes were flickering. I said, "Brov, listen, Jesus Christ, you made all of us fight for each other, and we did. And this is one time where you got to fight for yourself. Don't give up. Keep fighting." And the nurse said his eyes were flickering, but... He went through hell near the end. Um, and a lot of us that were close to him, Elma Geisick, myself, Mark Bernard, like they had an auction. His family, I don't know if you know this, Rick, his family won, nothing to do with hockey after he died. And they auctioned every single thing he had, socks. Well, he didn't have socks, shoes, rings, a Hall of Fame induction. So I got the Hall of Fame induction shirt. I bid on it. I got the Hall of Fame induction ring, watch, and a plaque. And I created a shrine in my office. But they got rid of everything. They didn't want any to do with him. He said Brof had a hockey family. He didn't have his own family. He didn't care about us while well. he put he coached. So it was a tragedy in the end for Brof, but uh, God bless his soul. He uh he helped a lot of us get to the national hockey League.
0: He helped. He certainly helped a lot he of players. Certainly,
1: yeah, he certainly did. And uh, I mean, what a wonderful, colorful <laughs> individual he was. And uh I mean, I I loved playing for him. I really yeah. did. I. I, like I know a lot of guys didn't, but I understood Broth. I guess maybe that was the difference. Yeah. And he liked me because I I went out and I played hard, and you know I got my nose in there, and and, and I think that's why he liked me. But but I, you know what? Away from the rape, Broth was just a wonderful person. He yeah. would do anything for you. Yeah. I mean, you know, it didn't matter what it was. If 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 you were in some kind of a bind and he could help you get out of it. Wouldn't
2: be a problem for him whatsoever. Well, I don't know if you name, remember the name Flo Robidoux. Rick, you remember that name? Played yeah. he played in Moncton when Larmer and Luddy and those guys played in Moncton. Yeah.
1: Okay. And
2: I think um, at that time, Messi's dad was the coach, and uh, Flo Robidoux was. The line he had, I think it was Kosicki, Robidoux, and, and some other guy. But Brophy, after practice, gave me a picture of Flo Robidoux and said, I want you to put this in your sleeve right here near your heart. I want you to put it under your pillow when you have your pregame nap. I want you to wake up and have your pregame snack where you're going to have. I want that picture right in front of you because you know what you're going to do tonight? You're going to stick him right in the face. I said, what? <laughs> he said, you're going to stick him right in the face. I said, bro, I didn't join to play pro hockey to stick people in the faces. Like, I'll hit him hard. I'll take him out, but I'm not sticking him. So what happens is we're on the ice and our bench is farthest away from the corner and Flo's got the puck coming up and I just, I didn't get a penalty. I left my feet. I hit him and he he hit the echelon. He comes down and he's bleeding like a pig. I get back to the bench and bro you're going to make a great pro. Way to stick him. <laughs> this day, well, when he died, I didn't tell, the players didn't tell him I didn't stick him. So Brof loved the fact that he thought I went out and did what he asked me to do, but I didn't do it. And uh, apologized to Flo once the series was done. But, no, he, he was good, but he, he it was an honor, and I think Rick may have said this. It was an honor when he said, okay, you're on his starting lineup. I think well, all the guys that worked hard fought to be on his starting lineup.
0: Well, he was quite a yeah. character. I mean, I just read his book recently, and uh, I know one of the stories in there when he was legendary and he was getting on in his years, one of the young guys, a young pro, came up to him after practice once and said, you know, I need you to teach me how to fight because you're the guy. And he goes, really, you want to learn how to fight, kid? He said, well, first off, and the kid had taken his helmet off, and they were after practice, and he's standing. he said, well, put your stick down first off. So he puts a stick down, bro. slaps him over the head with the stick. The kid starts beating. He goes, number one, real, don't put your fucking stick down ever. <laughs> <States away> laughing. <laughs> That's cool. So, we got a couple minutes left here, and we want to thank you so much for your time today, Larry. But uh, just while we're on the topic of uh, stories – Give us maybe one of the best pranks you ever saw over the years there must have been lots in the minors with all those bus trips maybe you saw received or you gave during your time at any one of your levels
2: well i got a couple ones that i look back to sure. one one ended up being a, a pretty prominent announcer in the national hockey league but we were in baltimore and uh the team uh we won the game brof took some of it out to the bar to celebrate with him and uh the poor announcer came out and the next thing you know the announcer's nude taped to a chair put in the elevator with all the buttons pushed so that that was one then we had a kid named ed small that for his initiation in halifax there was a cat show or a dog show going on they put him in a shopping cart and taped him in send him down the ramp <laughs> nude the red the, the, uh, buggy hits the ground and he pop that made the papers and then uh, the last one i remember <laughs> I, I thought we we're gonna have a donny brook i said bro if this is gonna be crazy but um Billy Kitchen, uh, a kid named Norman Baron, a fighter, uh, nailed down Bill Kitchen's fairly new shoes in the dress room. And the next day Norman Baron comes in he shits and Billy Kitchen skates. So Baron's on the ice already. I'm in the dress room. Kitch goes to put his scud bus, so he's dead now too, but he goes to put his skates on and and you smell the shit. And now he's livid. He's fuming brof's soddy in the ice. Kitch is trying to get the skates washed out and put on to come on the ice. And I go, bro, you better get ready to be in the middle of this because Baron just shitting Kitch's skates. And Kitch is going to go ballistic out here. Sure enough, bro, straight in the middle and the uh, <laughs> fight breaks out. But I couldn't believe that a guy would have his brand new shoes nailed to the bench just because the kid was getting a prank in on him. So there's a lot of other ones that happen along the way, but there's some yeah. good ones you remember. Comrade, it's all.
0: those are a couple of beauties. Well, let get any final comments right. before we go.
2: No, I just uh, I, no, appreciate, uh, I appreciate the fact you had me on. Uh, I consider Rick a friend. Uh, we both have a, fr- a mutual friend, Steve Lusitton's fighting the battles, and Rick's yeah. been with him a lot. So, um, no, I think uh, with all we've been through the past eighteen months, all I say any of these at the end is, listen. Hopefully, you learn to be better people, learn to get along, and uh, learn to respect everybody around you. So, it uh, it's not a fun time right now. We'll get through it, but we're gonna get through it together. So. Just everybody has to be safe and have some patience and get vaccinated if you can.
1: It's great. Yeah, I don't think I could have put it any better than that. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, uh, well, basically, you're not going to be playing hockey or you're not going to be able to get into a building to watch a game in most places unless you're double vaccinated. So, uh, you know, like I said, this is a terrible thing that's going on and we're going to get through it. But I think the biggest thing is that unless we get 80 to 90% of us in the U.S. and Canada vaccinated, it's not going away anytime soon. So, um, you know, it's one of those things that uh, I believe in and uh, it is working. It's it's proven that it's working. So go out and do that and get it done so that we can all kind of at some point in the near future get back to what it was normal before all this happened yeah i agree couldn't put it
0: any better and uh, listen we want to thank you so much for joining us today larry very insightful some great stuff keep up the great work with the uh, php uh we we'll would love to have you back on again at some time to give us updates on anything developing at the chl level in particular or the american hockey league and uh thanks so much for joining us
2: love to join you again at some point thank you but next time i have a filter
0: all <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> we no, like about no filters. Uh, filter thanks,
2: no guys. Just take care and be
0: safe out there. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Larry. Thanks, Larry.